Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. And I would like to take a moment to thank Cato Gold Sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. I would like to thank Aardvark Tactical for their relentless support for Cato for many years. While they may be famous for their excellent customer service, Project 7 Armor Platform, and Sejin and low-key tactical robots, Aardvark works with teams to deliver custom integrated purpose-built solutions that are designed to protect tactical operators. They find, develop, and manufacture purpose-built products that enhance tactical operator safety. Check them out at aardvarktactical.com. Thank you to Battleboard, a company whose origins were founded by a Marine who was looking for a flexible, durable, and portable map tracking system to coordinate operations on the ground in Afghanistan. Several evolutions later, Battleboard has emerged as an industry leader for those coordinating small and large-scale operations in the field. Veteran-owned and made in America, start your next mission fully prepared with Battleboard. Check them out at battleboard.us. I'd like to thank a long-standing supporter of Cato and our chemical agent program. Founded in 1981, Combined Systems Incorporated is a recognized leader in the design, manufacture, and marketing of security products for the global defense and law enforcement markets. As the premier supplier of less lethal munitions and launching systems, CSI manufactures products for riot control, police tactical teams, corrections officers, and military units. CSI's blue chip customer base includes the U.S. Army, U.S. Marines, U.S. Navy, and the majority of U.S. law enforcement, as well as foreign military and security forces around the world. Check them out at CombinedSystems.com. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Thank you for letting me come visit you here in Nashville. It's very interesting that all of our paths cross up and down the state of California, and yet we end up meeting in person in Nashville. So, uh, that's awesome. So Jeff, thanks for always calling me and sending us stuff. And, uh, it was again, uh, great to partner with you guys last year. Yeah, it was awesome to be at the, at the conference and, and, uh, and just having a relationship with Cato, I think is important because I love what you guys do. And I'm a former member, you know? Yeah. Which does lend to his credibility because some people said, who is that guy? I'm like, oh man, that, that guy's been around here a long time. So, uh, that being said, I want to talk a little bit about um, what you have been doing and uh, jumped in here and, and what Doc's been doing for our community and for first responders. And so I know Brent and John have uh, come up, met with you folks, took a tour, and uh, Brent can't be here because he's working. And uh, the rest of us are enjoying a sunny day in Nashville. But if you could talk a little bit about yourself, where you came from, and, uh, and how you ended up here. And then uh, I'll ask the doc to speak a little bit about his background and all the work that you guys have been doing. Yeah, I appreciate it. So um, I was a police officer for 29 years, um, you know, grew up in Southern California um, and joined the Marines when I was 17. I wanted to, you know, my grandfather was one of my one of my idols and wanted to follow in his path. He was an old World War II veteran. And so um, joined the, the military right out of high school. And then when I was uh, in the military, um, you know, I was like, well, I served my country. I'd love to go back and serve my community, you know. Um, so I uh, became a police officer and I worked for two departments. I worked for Simi Valley PD and then uh, Oxnard PD for the majority of my career, which are both in Ventura County. Um, and I was on the 
SWAT team for both those departments. So I did two years with CME and then about eight years with Oxnard. So 10 years in SWAT combined. Um, did a lot of great assignments. I, you know, the first half of my, my career was all operational. It was patrol, FTO. Um, I was on um, our full-time uh, gang unit, which we had a quasi-full-time SWAT team at Oxnard PD. So all of us were in the gang unit. So we were all working together every day and training three, four times a month in addition to all the, the you know, the the daily stuff that we would do and, um, got a lot of experience, um, in SWAT. And then I was a canine handler within. So I was like in the gang unit, a canine handler and on the SWAT team all at one time. So it was like the trifecta of having, so you know, weren't ever the, home. Yeah. No, I was always, never a, home. I was always a training. I was, oh, you know, I was on call, I think for 12 years of my life yeah. is what I figured out <laughs> is that, uh, you know, for, you know, good times, but, um, you know, I was involved in two officer-involved shootings during my career, and you um, got into detectives, and then I got into community policing, of all things. You know, I, I promoted, and I got uh, into a community policing assignment, which, you know, I didn't uh, expect my career path to go that way. Um, and when I got promoted to sergeant, um, field, field supervisor, and then uh, to a community policing detail, but I was part of our peer support program for about 15 years. And, um, when we started our peer program, um, they recruited people that had been, um, you know, in some critical incidents and that could help stand up the team. And when I got into uh, a leadership position and got to take over and be the coordinator for the peer support team is really when I got heavily involved in peer support and wellness and, and trying to be as proactive as I could about taking care of people because I had seen a lot of critical incidents. I had, I, we had lost people. I had seen people go out on stress. I'd seen my brothers and sisters get injured and shot and uh, had my own struggles with post-traumatic stress um, in 2015, where kind of everything kind of started kind of feeling like the walls were closing in on me because I was just um, between work stuff and some life stuff, I, I needed to get some help. And I, and I did that. Um, so when I was retiring, I wanted to take that experience that I had in peer support and wellness and just trying to continue to help cops is what my, my goal was. And, uh, I worked for a nonprofit for about a year and a half that was helping first responders. And, um, I met, um, I had met Dr. Odom originally in 2018 and, um, you know, about two years ago, I had the honor to, to join the team because I just love what they were doing. And, and I saw it as an opportunity to, to help cops at a higher level. And uh, so, you know, I've been in the mental health space for public safety for the last three years since I retired and uh, work with first responder wellness. And, uh, you know, I just, it's, I work with amazing people and all we do is help cops and firefighters and dispatchers all day long. That's what we do. Yeah. I like something you said, you didn't say it this way, but no one leaves this profession without a mark. And to think that you are is not being honest with yourself, right? And uh, we use the term boiling a frog a lot because you don't realize you're in the pot, but someday you're going to pay the piper one way or the other. Right. And uh, it's a gradual thing that you know, for some people, it could be one particular incident that affects them. But I think for most of us, it's this cumulative effect of doing the job for a long time and getting exposed to violence and seeing things and, and seeing people that um, were victimized. Um, and all those little micro traumas mixed in with the, you know, the big ones that we would consider critical incidents that over time they can take an effect. And if, if we're not doing good stress management, then it hits you and it hit me. It, it, it happened to me. Well, they don't call the police or sheriffs to come to a normal house. It's have a normal 
relationships, never, right? So, never, ever. So you spend your whole adult life just seeing all the bad stuff and to think that doesn't impact your view on life. And you and I are the same generation of law enforcement. So the folks that taught me how to, I think, did a pretty decent job as a cop. They did it by drinking some behaviors that were poor for their family and maybe not as moral and ethical as it could have been. And uh, you watch them deteriorate, die, have substance abuse issues. And of course, uh, the big topic, we're, we're killing ourselves, right? So, so, yeah, absolutely. So that I think it's uh, at least something that we can talk about because I know when you and I started, you wouldn't talk about that. No. And it, all the people that were our supervisors, they were all Vietnam vets. I mean, we yeah. both started in the early 90s yeah. and these guys all started in the 70s and it was a completely different mentality yeah. on uh, – yeah, and and you see all those guys. Most of them didn't make it to retirement themselves. You know, they're, uh, the they definitely they did, don't make it after no, for very long. No. Yeah, Doc, thank you for letting me be here, really, and thanks for uh, talking to our our group uh, here at Cato. Sure, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, <clears throat> just uh, do the the background thing, please. Um, so, gosh, I've been a healthcare guy forever. Um, <clears throat> Born in Colorado, raised in Fort Collins, um, lived in Tennessee for a long time. Uh, that's part of why I came this time. I got to see my family. Uh, and then I went out to California to study uh, crazy people. Uh, apparently, there's a good population no, out no there. No shortage. Right. That's what they told me. Um, <clears throat> and I always worked in kind of what I call specialty populations. So I first worked with um, nurses only. I really liked working with nurses. Uh, nurses are really tough, and they don't take any crap. They say that nurses eat their young, uh, which, you know, historically was true. I think that's changing a little bit, but I had them in behavioral health treatment. It's really hard to treat a nurse, uh, especially in a hospital, because nurses are always nurses. And um, <clears throat> once we kind of cracked the code and thought, you know what, if we treat nurses all by themselves, then all their walls drop pretty fast because you can't con a con. Um, and so that was real successful. After that, my hospital administration back then said, you did great with that kiddo. Why don't you do that with doctors? So we started a doctors only program and that was fun, except for one problem. They're all doctors. <laughs> a little on the narcissistic side, sometimes they want to have you prove all the research. Um, I had a month and a half where I had a neurosurgeon and a heart surgeon in our treatment program. Every morning they argued over who's more important to human life. It's like, <laughs> you guys are both kind of alcoholic assholes is really what the problem was here. So um, I loved it. It was great. <clears throat> um, super challenging. Yeah, super challenging. Really yeah, tough guys. It was ironic because, you know, usually when people graduate from programs like that, you offer them a challenge coin of one kind or another. But with the docs, we offered them a peacock feather. We thought that was really That's amazing. Apropos I love that. of what they, what they deserved. That's awesome. Just to remind them um, of what it was all about. So that was a lot of fun. And then uh, one day my wife walked in with our last child, uh, under, holding him under the arms. He was about three months old and said, you promised we'd move down to my parents after the last one was born. It's time. And I said, I don't remember that conversation at all. And so three months later, we moved to Southern California because that's where she's from. And I all landed right. another cool hospital um, in Newport Beach, Hogue Hospital, and um, ran all their psych and chemical dependency. But about three months into that, LAPD showed up. They door knocked us um, and they said, would you start treating officers? Um, they'd hurt a little bit. So, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to treat officers. Uh, the problem was, though, they were sending us one at a time. So this guy would come in. He'd go through detox. He'd come out into a group. He'd say, ah, that looks like a kid I arrested. I'm not talking. That's not my tribe. Yeah. Or no offense to that lady, but I think she's a Newport Beach housewife. I've got nothing in common with her. I'm not talking. 
And so it was really frustrating. I pushed and pushed. The hospital just wasn't into it. Eventually, I said, I think I have to take the leap. And I decided to start my own program in 2012. I knew that it would take you guys forever to trust us. Um, <clears throat> but then I started kind of putting two and two together about why I seemed to care so much. Um, a little bit back, like your background's mine. Um, I was raised by Vietnam uh, era veterans. So my dad had been an old school family practice guy. Uh, he got drafted at the age of 32 and sent to Vietnam. Yeah, I was wow. over there for 18 months. Um, <clears throat> when he came back, he walked around that little town of Fort Collins and saw all these guys with camo jackets and long hair. He said, I think I can help these guys. I think I know what's wrong. And so he was able to get David Smith, who founded the Haight-Ashbury Clinics, to come live with us for two months and taught my dad how to do heroin detox a long, long time ago. So I was like, okay, it's kind of in the blood. But it also made me think about other people in my family, especially his brother, um, who was the oldest. His name was Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill was a three-star general. He went to West Point. He was the director of the NSA for six years. So he was like the top spy in the whole world. Um, <clears throat> never had a feeling. Um, you should see him at a family reunion. You know, hey, how's the weather, Uncle Bill? He'd say, I'm sorry, that's classified. We're not talking yeah. about that. <laughs> you know, and then I have a cousin, his son, who... Um, I had to prove I was the dominant kid in the family, so I had to beat him up every summer here in Tennessee, by the way, in Middle Tennessee. And <clears throat> he grew up and uh, became the regimental commander of the Rangers. So he owes you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. For making him tough. And I also won't make eye contact with him because <laughs> I'm afraid he'll disappear me. Uh, and I got like, I have a DEA brother. I have three other cops in the family. I have three firefighters. It's like my whole family. That's just who we are and what we do. We take so you've care. had lots of discussions about this. Oh, it's, Yeah. And lots and lots of non-discussions about this. You know, it's interesting because a lot of my family, like when my dad retired, um, he kind of never really retired, but when he officially retired, he dropped dead of a heart attack within a year. No heart wow. disease. Yeah. Uncle Bill did the same thing. Um, some of my cousins have kind of disappeared into the hills. You know, you only hear about them through their spouses. You don't really yeah. hear from them. Um and so as a result of all that, we've learned so much about what first responders are really all about. And you guys were already kind of talking about it at the beginning. It's that there's this cultural view that says anything we see, anything we experience should be handled internally by us. And it really shouldn't bother us. And if it does, that's on you. There's a problem with you. And you can't really let anybody know that there's a problem with you because that makes you weak and that makes you not one of us. And so people just bottle stuff up over the course of 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And then when's it going to pop out? And is it going to come out sideways? Is it going to come out, you know, like you said, what we were talking about before the podcast, is it going to be a heart attack? You know, is it going to be heart disease? Is it going to be a cancer? What's it going to be? Because the stressors on the body will come out one way or the other. And so I think we've learned so much at the treatment center about <clears throat> what would have, could have, should have happened to that guy or that girl um, earlier in their career. And so I think as a result of all that, um, that's what we get real excited about is not only the treatment side of things, but also the prevention side of things. So I'll stop there and ask a question and I can, I can cause I can keep going. No, it's fantastic. It's good to, to kind of see your journey, like how you ended up here. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's very mission driven. I didn't realize it was, but I, this is the only place I want to be. And I know that everything about my life got me here. Yeah. And yeah. It's, which I, is awesome. Yeah. I yeah. love meeting people that, you know, sometimes you, you, like you said, that you don't have that clarity in the beginning, especially in government work, very linear paths, right? Right. And then when you retire, it can be overwhelming because you're like, oh, I have to, it's like, it's almost like being an inmate. I have to control myself. Like, what am I going to do? Where's my path going to go? And so I love hearing like how people's paths kind of journey and end up right where they need to be. 
Yeah. And so, you know, I think back to the, the treatment side of things, you know, the stuff that we learn is that <clears throat> I'll just use a couple of examples. And these are always people who let us say, you know, who they are and what they did. We don't ever break anybody's confidence. But at First Responder Wellness now, we've treated, I think we're up to about 1,278 uh, first responders since 2018. We only treat first responders in our, in our milieu. Um, we dispatch every kind of law enforcement, every kind of fire, every kind of corrections. Um, we do take emergency room physicians and nurses. Um, we've taken assistant district attorneys who prosecute gang and sex stuff, uh, some crime scene investigators, um, and some trauma-based like texts and things like that a few times. So that's our; those are our people. If you run into trauma, we'll t we'll take care of you. We'll help you get back out. Um, but what I've noticed over the time, of course, the time, and Jeff said this earlier also, is for the most part, it's an accumulation. You know, because I think the real the real difficulty. Let, let's go back to the beginning, especially in law enforcement. One of your first frightening experiences coming into law enforcement, believe it or not, is a psychologist. You do not like psychologists because psychologists have the keys to your kingdom, and so everybody did a pre-employment psych, and you answered all those weird questions like, "Do I want to run a flower shop or read car magazines?" I like fire. Yeah. I like fire. Yeah. I remember there was 78 different ways to catch me saying I like fire. I'm like, they're obsessed with fire, this, this questionnaire. Exactly. And the result of that test is that you passed. And the conclusion from that test in your mind is never let them know anything is ever wrong because I might not pass that test again or I might not be fit for duty. And so everything about your life is about remaining fit for duty. And so when you think about things that might trouble you or bother you, and whether that's personal stuff or whether that's stuff on the job, you just can't let anybody know because someone might drag you into a room and ask you questions, and then there goes your badge and there goes your gun, right? So we never tell. So that's a fundamental problem in law enforcement. It's also a fundamental problem in wellness in law enforcement because I can I will tell you a few stories. You know, first, first story I'll tell you is we had a guy um, not that long ago who – volunteered for treatment, right? And he told his department, because they have a wellness bureau and you know all that kind of stuff. And they said, okay, come on in. We're going to do a little paperwork just to make sure your leave is taken care of. And, and so he shows up and he showed up at the Professional Standards Bureau because that's how wellness reported. And six or seven guys are there. They drew blood, they made him pee, and they made him sign a last chance agreement. And this guy had <laughs> volunteered to go get help. Okay? So what do you think the rest of the department is seeing? Yeah. No one will ever go again because they, they're worse than him. And so sometimes it's well-meaning, but it's not completely understood. And so one of the things that we get to do, which I, is part of my, one of my favorite things, is we get to work with departments to really think through wellness. Because wellness really should have two very separate paths in a department. We should encourage people to go talk about anything and everything early and often. That's what we should be doing. And there's no discipline. If there's discipline, that's a different path. But they, the, never the twain shall meet because that's a problem. And you guys don't trust anybody anyway. You're suspicious of the whole system in the first place. So how do we bifurcate it in a way that keeps it really far apart? Back to kind of the, the stories part, um, you know, a couple of guys who came through the program, and this is kind of the story, especially kind of on the special operator side of things, is, you know, the guy who was the um, first SWAT in at Columbine. You know, he he did his job. Uh, he did 18 more years. He retired. About a year and a half after that, he was putting a gun in his mouth. And what was bothering him was not anything in his job, except for the fact that when he had gone 
into the school and he had walked over all the kids who were screaming and crying for him, he couldn't stop because his job was to get the shooter. And so that's what pops up in his head over and over and over again. And another guy was the incident commander of the Aurora Theater shootings. Um, everything looked beautiful, right? They got, what was it, 80 people into the hospital in less than 45 minutes. The president came and saw him. Yeah. Really cool. Four and a half years later, though, it's like he's walking around in circles. He has no meaning. He has no purpose. And he feels like there's so many things I should have, could have, would have done better, different, that that's rattling around. Last guy I'll mention real quickly, and he's a fire guy, but that's okay. Um, <clears throat> he was the LA County fire captain. And, you know, he has a vehicle in flames, center lanes, 405, 5 p.m., right? It's a parking lot, trying to snake the hoses in. Everyone's out of their cars, screaming, save the people, save the people. But his, his crew notices that immediately behind that vehicle is an oil tanker truck that's caught on fire. So he has to make a decision, right? The decision is, do I do something cosmetic to make everybody happier? Do I just go straight and protect the, the tanker truck so it doesn't explode? So he makes the right call, right? He protects the tanker truck. He finishes his career six or seven years later. Now he's like two years into retirement. And the thing that wakes him up in the night is not the people burning in the car. It's the people screaming at him saying, aren't you a human? What's wrong with you? All that kind of stuff. So I think when we think like that, we change our definition of trauma. You know, everyone's talking about trauma. And in some ways, you're almost a little prepared for it. You know, you're going to see stuff. Everybody knows you're going to see stuff. You know, I, like I remember when I first started working in a hospital, the, my first job was that I got to be in the ICU every time they took someone off life support. Right. Yay. Yeah. Hooray. And I was there for 10 minutes or, so or that, 10 hours. That's you know? inoculation. Is that yeah. That, that was my stress yeah. inoculation. And I, I remember everything about number one and number two. And then I remember number 78 because that was the last one. Right. And I can't remember anything of the stuff in between yeah. because that's just the pile. Right. You guys have the pile. And so we really need to redefine trauma because trauma, especially in public safety, is really just two categories. It's it's what we call moral injury. Moral injury is when I see what people do to other people and it enrages me and it also breaks my heart just a little bit. It doesn't take that many of those. And oftentimes that's the kids, you know, that's the innocent, that kind of stuff. But the second kind are decisions, like the one I just mentioned with that fire captain, because every law enforcement officer makes decisions and you will make decisions that are the right thing and somebody decent doesn't make it as a result. And like if a bad guy doesn't make it, who cares? But if a good person doesn't make it, or sometimes we don't make the right decision and those, yeah. and those haunt us. And we get really bad training scars from that because we think either or, either or. In reality, it's, it could be the lesser of two bad choices. Right. Neither, neither one are good, yeah. but you got to make one. Yeah, it's what we call a Sophie's choice. Yeah. yeah, that's what those are called. And so I think if we really dial it down in and say, those are the two categories of things that are going to bother you. And so when those kinds of things are experienced, we should know that that's what you have to take care of right now. We also know that if you process trauma within about 30, 45 days of it occurring, and whether that's through a, a peer support, whether that's through a chaplain, whether that's through a debrief, whether that's through the shrink, you know, however, however you choose to do it, the likelihood of it becoming a post-traumatic stress drops markedly, like up to 80%. People don't get it. But if you lock it down, which is what the culture says anyway, and now it's six months later and that stuff's just showing up when it wants to, you know, it's usually cued recall. It's usually smells and sights and sounds and times and tastes and all those kinds of things. Um, the next thing you know, it's like, it's not just that one. It's everything that's thematic to that. 
because that's what happens. Everybody kind of has a golden thread, right? Once you start picking at it, you kind of go, oh boy, I can see where this is all coming from. And so what we don't want to have to have is this completely reactive approach to everything that we wait until the, you know, what hits the fan and my life is falling apart. And now I drink too much. And now I've had 10 affairs and I'm on my third wife and I've spent all my money. Oh, I think there's a problem. It's like, that's not the way to do this. The way to do this is, like I said before, early and often. And so I think what that means is that when we get into public safety, we have to teach the badasses, you know, you guys, that... <clears throat> he was talking to us, Jeff. I was talking no, to you. Well, not no, so much. It was the other, no, it's so much making, he made eye contact. There was an empty chair that. in the middle of the... <laughs> yeah, that's the actual... That's the guy. That's, that's the, the true guy. badass. That's yeah. Is that you have to? It's Uncle Bill. Uncle it's Bill. Uncle, I'm really talking Uncle, Uncle Bill, Bill right? Yeah. Um, and my cousin, right? Um, you really have to realize and say, let's let's redefine some of this stuff. You know, believe it or not, the one of the best biggest strengths you'll ever have is vulnerability, but with the right people at the right time in the right place. And so, if you know that you can be vulnerable and remain human you're much more likely to get through your career. You're much more likely to stay married. You're much more likely to balance your life out a little bit. And historically, that's not how public safety looked at that kind of stuff. It's like, that's the weak stuff, but that's not really the weak stuff. That's the hardest stuff you'll ever do is to say, that hurt. That made me so upset. I wanted to kill somebody, but it also made me want to cry. And if I can talk about that, then it gets to go away and it doesn't get locked down in me. And so if we could take this proactive approach, you know, when we look at the cohorts that are living in public safety right now, especially in law enforcement, you know, you basically got three cohorts. You got the guys who are all within about five years of retiring. They were raised by the Vietnam vets who was the suck it up buttercup folks. And if it bothers you, that's on you. And they're going to ride off in the sunset and they will end up in my treatment center right? Two years from now, five years from now, seven years from now. And a lot of them walked across the line perfectly fine. They weren't really doing anything maladaptive. They were just working hard. Because when you think about the things that you guys do to quote unquote dissociate, because that's what you do is you stay away from the stuff you don't want to think about. Alcohol is easy. It's legal and it works. That's great. Um, you know, Sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of comes next. Um, and whether that's, you know, whether that's infidelity, whether that's porn, whatever it is, there's a lot of that going on. Spending money, right? I can buy anything I want, um, and I do. Um, <clears throat> apparently, the, the, the raging addiction in America now is something called Amazon. You guys have heard about that one. It's about collecting cardboard boxes. Yeah, yeah, they see them at my house all the time. Yeah, and you put them next to the trash can and hope someone else will break them down. It's great. Yeah, right? that's just a... I just thought that was part of marriage. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so like, oh, that, that's a, the next the podcast. The cardboard fairy. We'll, yeah, that's yeah. totally different. We'll talk okay. about that Sorry, another I'll time. stick to the topic. Yeah, that. And you have to get a crew cab, you know, truck like everybody else on the team. You right, know, exactly. Keep yeah. up with yeah. the Joneses. Oh, oh, Jimmy just got a boat. Well, I guess we got to get a boat now too. Yeah, yeah you, you're talking about high-risk behaviors, right? And, yeah. And to, to run away or to mask yeah, well, that, the to last keep yourself high, the, busy the, 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 the most insidious, dangerous behavior – if you're not doing all that nonsense, is the fact that during your work life, you are working as much as you possibly can, like we mentioned to Jeff, right? And so what happens is that's actually a really good way to deflect. That's a really good way to not think about things. Guess what happens when you retire, 
right? All of a sudden you're not busy like that anymore. And that's when stuff starts to bubble up. So we've seen so many people who now drink too much or now they're doing all those behaviors and they never did it before. And their spouse is like, I don't know who this guy is. He wasn't like that before. And now he's like that now. It's like, because you never processed anything and now it's all coming home to roost. And so that's a reactive approach. If that, if, and when that ever happens, you know, I'd like for folks to understand there is really good help out there. What I will also want you to understand is you have to be very careful how and where you find it because internet websites are really groovy and cool and they show all kinds of neat stuff. But what you really want is a place that only treats first responders. I absolutely believe that with all my heart because if it's only responders, your walls drop and you will talk about the things you need to talk about. Because it's your tribe. Because it's you your need, tribe. You need people in your tribe that yep. can translate to your community, right? Like, you know, cause you were me, right? Yeah, and, like, and, and hold you accountable. Yeah. Who do doctors hang out with on a cocktail hour besides nurses, other doctors, right? Where do cops go? Cops. Occasionally we let a fireman in there just to make fun of them, but generally it's Or cops. to help reorganize the garage because yeah. they're super good at that. You know, what's funny yeah. is no one hangs out with me at a cocktail party because either they, they come up to me and they want to tell me about a friend they have and all the things that I could do to help them. Or they think I might be the addiction guy or the mental health guy, and they don't want me to watch them drinking, so they go to the other side of the room. Ah, so I'm like the loneliest true. guy at a party. That's true, huh? Yeah. You're that guy where, like, he can see through me. Yeah. He can see. It's like, oh, my God, Dr. Odom's going to see me having a glass of wine. What's he going to think of right. me? Exactly. Yeah. So it's 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 a That's tough, a lonely it's, place it's at a the tough top. Life. Lonely it's a, place at it's the a, top. It's a tough life. So yeah. I think you brought up something that if you could touch on a little bit more uh, – we spend all this time uh, talking about physical health, right, and preventative stuff. And if you look at wellness in law enforcement the last 20 years, say, uh, depending upon where you are, say, in the state of California or the country, obviously we're still pretty obese, just like the population. But we're not afraid to talk about, hey, you need to be in better shape. You have to pass a PT test. You have to do this. But once we pass our psych, unless someone orders you – for fitness for duty, which is generally, I think everyone would agree, considered a punitive action. <laughs> right. No, right. Without a doubt. Um, it's not a reward. It's not a reward. Uh, there's nothing about maintenance. And, and that's really what you're talking about. You're, you need to take uh, the, the big term right now everyone talks about is like sleep hygiene, right? Like, well, what's your mental hygiene? Like what's your routine? What are the things you do? And I grew up going to choir practice. Kids don't do that anymore. Now there were some really good things about choir practice, like positive things. I got to be around people that I could have deep talks with that I wouldn't have a talk with like on the street. And there were veterans and they shared their experience and wisdom with me. But there's also some bad things that happened, right? Usually people drank too much. There's some poor behavior uh, sometimes. So, but like when I went back to patrol and a team tried to have choir practice. They all just sat on their phone and texted each other and they never even looked at each other. Yeah. And I was, was like, this is the weirdest yeah, it's thing a new I've generation, ever seen, right? It's very like, different. doesn't work for them, right? right? And yeah. I don't know how great it worked for the generations I came up in either because, again, you're talking about the wrong deal, but... Yeah, you did feel connected, but I think you didn't feel necessarily... Well, if, if alcohol is in the middle of all that and you think you're talking about your feelings... Those are kind of artificial feelings. Those aren't the real deep stuff when right. alcohol is involved. So it just yeah. has to be sober to do that, and it would work better. You know, I think you mentioned a couple of really important things. Um, I, I mentioned the cohort that's finishing now. There's the mid-career there's the mid cohort, and all those men and women 
grew up under the the leadership of those folks. And they're a little confused because like, I'm not sure I want what that guy's like now. <laughs> That's not the life I, I'm looking for. Um, but I really don't know anything else. But I think there must be something better. There's We've got to be doing a better job with ourselves than we have been. And then you get the young ones coming in. And the young ones, in many ways, that's the future, right? In some ways, we're frustrated with them because they seem to be a little different. They seem to want to have trophies for everything. They seem to want to get um, promotions and raises about every six months. And, and they, they don't want to work 80 hours a week and no, not they see don't. their family. They don't. They want work-life balance. It's like, what the heck is that? Um, and actually, it's it's kind of funny. We've had a couple of calls recently, but we you know we work with a lot of chiefs because I, I didn't first responder wellness is the treatment center. We also have the counseling team, which has been doing this for almost forty years, short term counseling in crisis and and, um, and and training for public safety only. And so we do tons of pre employment psych. We do lots of peer support training. We show up at every crisis, and so we work with a lot of agencies on building their wellness program because that's another issue is wellness. Just let's put a. a a mark by that for a second. Um, but so we got this, we got a, a fire chief call and he said, uh, I'm not sure what to do with this, but I had two, I, you know, four or five kids I was calling up to offer a job. And two of them um, said something kind of funny. One of them said, well, thank you very much, chief. I'm going to have to think about that and I'll get back to you in a few days. He goes, no one's ever said that to me. Like if I offer you a job in the fire department, you're going to take the job. It's the best job you could ever have. And the second one said, well, I'm really interested in it, but I would really like to hear about what the wellness package is for me. Wow. And it's like, something is really shifting. So he knows, he knows a retired fireman <laughs> yeah. who lives in a van. He got schooled real well. <laughs> yes. by yeah. Me, I just went in the classified ads and there's departments that were hiring and I would have done, done anything, you know, to get a job, right. you know, uh, and to get that call was like the greatest day of your life that, like, oh my God, I'm there's a department that's going to give me a chance. Yeah. And I can so those young ones, you know, they don't know what they don't know about how it used to be. They only know where they start. And maybe some of them come from families and they see how their dads were, or their moms were, or whatever sure. that was. And they don't want to be like that necessarily. Sure. But it's confusing. And so, you know, you mentioned the whole physical health side of things and that that's, we're beginning to pay attention to that. And then we throw this term wellness in there. Wellness is a buzzword for anything and everything. And I think if we stayed smart, we would think about you guys have a, a unique career in a lot of ways, because like you said, you kind of live on the dark side in a lot of ways. You know, the calls you have are not to happy places. The calls you you live in are it's on the negative side of life, which means that you really have to work hard to remain positive, to be okay in your personal life, because your work life is not like that at all. And so if we start to talk about all the areas of wellness, there's really eight domains of wellness. And it's whether it's your financial life or your spiritual life or your emotional life or your physical, I mean, all those things, that's what public safety should be paying attention to. We can't just say, take care of your mental health because that's still got stigma attached to it. Sure. But if we yeah. say, let's do some mental performance training, everybody thinks that's pretty cool, especially if you put a patch on it and wear black. It's great. So it is, it, you, that's a great point because uh, I recently did some uh, work uh, with PTSD stuff and I was with some really high performing human beings in the military. And at one point we kind of chuckle and we look at each other and we're like, am I just doing this because I want to perform really well at this task? And like, it's supposed to be about getting healthy, but you have to deprogram yourself and go, Hey man, I need to just kind of 
relax about this and see what happens. Not like I'm going to do everything because I'm going to perform. So the second you label it, like I'm going to be good at that. I'm going to, yeah. not everybody, but a lot of people. Most will. Yeah. And so, and I think the other way we approach point. it is, you know, the, the buzzword also is resilience, right? Being resilient. And that can just mean about just about anything. And so what does it really look like in public safety? Well, in a lot of ways, what it really looks like is the fact that if you think about how you guys are trained, you know, you're, you're trained in a really neurobiological way. You're trained to have situational awareness and presence around the clock. That's what you're trained for. And that activates one half of your central nervous system, you know, of the autonomic nervous system. And, and it's the sympathetic. And so you're always ready, right? And then it begins to betray you because you're always ready even when you don't want to be ready. And what they forgot is that as we train you in the sympathetic, we should be training you just as hard in the parasympathetic. We should treat you, train you to calm down as soon as you go up. And that way you keep your balance point. That way the stress-related illnesses like the cancers and the heart disease and the aneurysms and all that would not occur nearly as much because I can bring myself back down to where I need to live. And it keeps me better at home, keeps me better with my spouse, it keeps me better with my kids. And so how do we marry all that presence around the clock with calming down like a badass too? Because that's what we have to start doing. And that's when everybody in town shows up with their latest trick about how to do this kind of stuff. But it's basic stuff. It's what are all the things to activate parasympathetic nervous system? And if we start training that at the beginning of a career, then that's the new norm. Another way we do that is, like you said, more and more people are focusing on physical health. More and more law enforcement departments are requiring physicals on a regular basis, not once, but every year or every other year. Well, what we've worked with a lot of departments is, hey, when you do that physical, you're going to walk out of the doctor's door or the NP's door, and you're going to walk right into the counselor's door. And everyone's going to see the counselor too, right? And it's called a mental performance check. And we don't care what you talk about. There's no notes. There's no diagnosis. But everybody does it. And if everybody does it, then it's not weird anymore. And the next thing you know, you went in there and you say, you know what? I'm pretty good right now. But you know what? Uh, my wife and I are kind of arguing about how we spend the money. Or, you know what? I got a six-year-old and she thinks he's ADHD and I don't think he is at all. I want him to grow out of it. And sometimes we fight over that. And next thing you know, that counselor helped you kind of work some things out. Because you guys also know that for a lot of guys... Work is the best place. Yeah. <laughs> Work is yeah. the best place. It's like when I go home, that's where the trouble is. And no one ever taught my family about my job either. So that's another thing we really focus on is how do we train families to become a true law enforcement or fire family to say, you know what, if they understood what it was like when I come off shift and they can't just hand me a list because they don't know what kind of shift I had, although technically speaking, they probably figure out what kind of shift I have by the way I shut the truck. Right, They know if it's a bad day. And so they want me to be okay, but they're walking on eggshells. We train our families to be cautious about us. And then you wonder why we're not talking about anything anymore. It's like, what if we brought them in? And what if we explained to them that this is how we do life, that every time I come off shift, I'm going to give you a high sign, good shift, bad shift, whatever that means. And if I have a, had a bad shift, then I'm probably going to need two hours. You know, I got to go work out again, or I got to take a shower. I just got to be my, be by myself, whatever it is my family needs. We're going to figure out how to really be that family. Because if we say that public safety is a calling, I think the other thing we have to remember is that, you know, you guys signed a contract 
that said, and no one remembers this when they signed it, but you signed the contract that said, my job will be the most important thing in my life. And it will always be first. Always. We actually recruit and say the opposite with a little wink, right? Just like, just like we both were laughing because we're like, well, I want to use all my, like you can earn all this vacation time, but if you take it, we're going to hold it against you. Yeah, like if exactly. you take all your vacation time, we're going to take it against you. Yeah, exactly. So you're absolutely right. How could you leave us hanging like that, man? We were short on the shift. Yeah, yeah exactly. Day. And but the thing we that your families didn't realize they didn't sign up for that part. They, well, they did. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they did. signed the implicit contract. Right. The implicit contract is you will always be number two and never more than that. Yeah. And that's a really hard thing for folks to reconcile with sometimes. Mm-hmm. But if we could talk about it then we could be a really strong family because I believe that, you know, we see so many things, people coming in the treatment center. It's like, it's really not just the job ever. It's everything else. And if we're going to take care of this whole person, you know, and the agencies are going to take care of this whole person, what do we do? You know, so I think there's a lot we need to be thinking about. We're beginning to do it. I see more and more departments willing to do it, but it's kind of the dawn of a new era. And I think we have to be careful that we're not just checking boxes in wellness and we're not just laughing at it, but it's kind of every part of wellness. And and you're right. There are some good intention people out there trying to do their wellness programs, but you have to be careful because we are in a space where we don't have a lot of, we actually do have a lot of proven uh, methods but we haven't applied them to law enforcement. And so uh, we're not always the most creative thinkers. And so if someone doesn't draw the line, there's a lot of gimmicks and things you can, you can fall for and there's no quick fix. And there's a, there's a trust component. I think that is really, you know, kind of way back in what um, Dr. Odin was talking about is, um, you know, we get taught to be afraid of the psychologist, which was my experience early on is that, um, that, hey, man, when you, you're going to go see the psychologist, but just tell them everything's fine. Like they prep you, you know, to to go into this that because and they make you uh, feel like you want to debrief whatever this incident you've been in. But like you don't want to say certain things because you they, they just create this fear that if you say something wrong, this which is the complete opposite is that you should be you know, you can tell this person if there's something that you're struggling with or that, you know, you had you did have a reaction to something that they're going to help you and point you in the right direction because they just want you to be well and get through this thing successfully. But you don't share things many times because you're afraid that they're going to report back to the department something that you said. And the other thing I wanted to you know, say is when talking about trust is like in, within the departments or even within the, the, the team is that um, having, how do you create an environment where your guys know that it's okay to come forward if they're struggling with something? Because a lot of the times when you do debriefings, you know, that particular call may not have bothered anybody, but it was a trigger for something that happened before many, many times, you know, that, you know, that you go, yeah. depending on how busy you're, let's just talk about patrol life. Didn't even have to be, you know, SWAT guy stuff, but that, you know, um, a particular crime scene, everybody says, Hey, you know, it's another shooting or it's another stabbing, but then there could be one person, you know, that's in your group that they're not, thinking about what's happening today, they're thinking about this call that happened three weeks ago that was really gnarly and that, nope, you know, they never talked about. And, you know, when you do debriefings about stuff, many times what would come out is that, you know, hey, you know, I'm totally fine with this, but man, as soon as this right one was done, I, I was thinking about the shooting I was at before, or there was a, um, an officer that I, I spoke, when I was on peer support, we would do some debriefings with, with, uh, with folks in this 
this officer, we were talking, there was a, a big officer involved shooting that had happened. So we were debriefing everybody that was involved in that thing. And he wasn't bothered about this OIS at all. He was like, man, I've been going through a lot of suicides lately. And boom, like that light bulb goes off of like, and you find out that he had gone to three suicide calls within a week or two weeks. And that, and this is a, you know, veteran guy, he had 20 years on the job. And so there's so much, like I said, that cumulative stuff. And, you know, by, so when you, when you talk, when you do some debriefings, it's an opportunity when you, you know, to find out that if, if they trust you, if they trust the process and they're not afraid to talk to their peer support team, they're not afraid to talk to, if you have a relation, build a relationship with a therapist or a psychologist that people feel comfortable and they, they know that it's good for everything, that they're, they'll, they'll share something and, it, and they can get the help that they need. Like Dr. Odom was talking about somebody comes in for a, a mental performance checkup and they're, you know, and they'll, they'll bring up maybe that they're having a marriage problem or, you know, one of my children is struggling with something or, you know, actually I want to, if you don't mind, I want to talk to you about this thing that happened a year ago that just keeps popping up and I'm not sure why this thing's popping up. And, but that's all about trust. It's, it's trusting the people that they're, and, and also trusting that the department, because some people just think that no matter what you do, there's some secret file on you that, you know, whatever you tell somebody in the, one of these debriefings, it's like, oh, this is going to, uh, you know, affect me getting a promotion or I'm not going to get that assignment I want, or somehow somebody's going to, you know, they always think that people are uh, maneuvering on them, you you know, that they're going to use this against them in some reason. And that's, if you, if you have a, you know, the leadership who, you know, can embed in people that we want you to use these programs and it's confidential and, uh, and, and just trust, uh, that, that there's confidentiality, um, then that, then a paradigm shift starts to happen. And there's a bunch of departments, a lot of examples that we have of departments that's really had a big shift in the last five years. And what happens is the usage goes way up because people, are not afraid to come forward or raise their hand or because they know that, um, you know, it's, it's in their best interest to do it and nobody's going to come after them for it. Yeah. And I really like you stressing that you, you need to split those two things. And I think when, when you said that, I looked back and thought, you know, anecdotally the experiences I've had with different agencies, that's when we get in trouble. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I don't want to come to you for help because you're going to penalize me. Right. right. Now it doesn't mean the other side of that is we have to address the behavior. Absolutely. Right? So if you're acting outside the law or code of conduct or whatever it is, we, we're going to have to address that as an agency. But, and, and this is a shift I noticed uh, in my career was we spend a lot of time and money investing in you. And we need you. Like if you leave in, in year eight, we didn't, we didn't get our return, right? So we, we've invested in you. Now you're having this trouble. Let's invest in you so you can come back and we don't just throw you away. And and so many times I've watched us throw people away. Yeah, they go and out you, on stress and they don't get the help or that they disciplined, needed. Right? Like you look and like uh, so many times I've watched it and I've gone, that's the definition of PTSD. That person's behavior, if you look over the last two years and instead we just hammer them. And I'm not, like I said, you still address the behavior, but like, you know what? You could probably fix that person. And they, they got another 10 years in them, right? If you can help them, yeah, you they know, got another 10 years of giving what historically they might have already done for 20 perfectly. Like no issues at all. And then we just kind of throw them away because we can't figure it out. Well, now you're using a rational approach. What are you doing? What's wrong with you? <laughs> Even the math, but it's right. not it's well, not our money. So sometimes it, we don't think that way. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting because 
I think we're at a point, kind of an inflection point, where everyone can agree that wellness matters, that we don't want all these bad things happening, especially suicides, and we don't want the cancer, and we don't want all that kind of stuff. And people are connecting the dots over to mental health pretty well. But you have to have the right argument with the right stakeholder, you know? And so <clears throat> you can tell the chief and you can tell the union, you got to take care of your people. And they're like, well, yeah, we're on board. And then the chief will turn around and say, yeah, but then I answer to a city manager or I got to go to a council or whatever it is. So I really want to, but I have a boss too. And then <clears throat> you flip it around the other direction and say, well, let's talk with HR and let's talk with risk management. And they're like, we can't justify the cost. We can't justify the expense. So you have to be able to have a conversation, just like you said, which is, wait a minute, we've got like $3 million into this guy and he's been on the job eight years. Why are we throwing away an investment? Let's return him to his prior state, plus the fact that he has all that experience. And then we don't have to start over again and, and waste our money. And so you have to say the right thing to the right people. I always really like also, um, we've gotten pretty good at getting all the stakeholders in the room. So when you have the chief in there, you got a city council member, you got HR, you got risk management, you got the president of the union, um, all in the room, daring each other to not help, they tend to move in the right direction. It, it, yeah, go, it goes gotta, better that way. You have to break down those silos a little bit. Yeah, you really do. And, yeah. and, and I think that's what's moving the ball forward here in wellness too. Um, so, you know, as, as we talk, hopefully you kind of get the idea that kind of I'm involved in lots of different areas. And, and in a lot of ways at this point, you know, I still approve every admission that comes into the treatment center. But I really, and I really like working with the chiefs. I like working with the executive level because I know if we can get through to them, they can make some things happen, right? The other thing I like to do is I like to make all this stuff in wellness as bulletproof as possible because what's happened, and we've noticed over the past five years at least, is that you'll get a wellness champion in place, right? And, and that person will get everything done for you. And then what do they do? They promote or they retire, and you don't know who's coming behind them. And, lose momentum. And they kind of change everything. And so I've watched people swing all the way left, swing all the way right, all the way up, all the way down. It's like, ah, why can't we just have a policy that you can't get around, that this is how we take care of people? And so I think that's gradually coming. It's getting there. But, you know. Yeah, the key is building a structure that supports it. So it doesn't matter the person. Exactly. But you have to have that person with the passion to go through all the bureaucracy. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you have to understand all those things. So like another really kind of exciting thing that's just happening now is <clears throat> last year, year ago, we were um, uh, requested by California Post to build a 40-hour wellness program coordinator course that touches everything. And it, it's, it's approved. We've now done uh, cohort number two. And it's pretty amazing. Like these guys, it's a, it's a commitment. These guys are there for a week, but they're learning everything I just talked about. They're learning not just how to be the wellness person, but how to talk to the chief and the risk manager and all that, and how to really present it to whoever you have to present it to. So again, it becomes bulletproof, but also how to make it be a cool part of the culture and not what you, know, what you have to do. And so I'm just beginning to watch all kinds of things change. And what was really interesting, the first two groups that came through, is there was agencies that had very robust wellness programs, like big, huge agencies with over a thousand. Um, and then there was folks who said, uh, my chief just said, we need a wellness program and I'm the one. So I got to figure it out. It's like everything in between, but everybody learned something. You know, the, even the seasoned folks are like, oh, we didn't think about it like that because we were going up through professional standards. We shouldn't have done that. You know, those kinds of questions or, or when someone needs to go get help, how do you get them help? Because no one in public safety is ever going to get help 
unless it's paid for. Right. <laughs> right. I got to have my time yeah. paid. I got to have yeah. all that stuff. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I can't go. And so we have to figure out workarounds because you don't want to throw everybody into workers comp because half the time when you go to workers comp, you're never coming back. Yeah. And that's not what people want to do. They only want to go because they know they get their time paid and right. then they want to come back. So let's work out a different system. Let's pay some admin leave for them. Let them use their personal insurance. And if they decide to file a claim later, they can. But if not, then they're just coming right back to work. Like that's the way we have a, a, a workforce that says, we care about you. We want you back. Yeah. A partnership. Yeah. Not, not you're going to yeah. go file a claim and you're going to get a lawyer and we're never going to speak again. And then you're going to live in a world of institutional betrayal, right? And you're going to hate everything about this job. It's like, well, that's not what we signed up for, but that's how it ends up time after time after time. We got to change that. The second you said that, you know, anybody listening is thinking of somebody right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They absolutely are. For sure. Or, or more than a couple. I mean, immediately I'm like, oh, man, I just, I haven't thought about that person in a long time or that person or that person or that person, <laughs> right? Like, it's not one. I think we're going to do a debrief. Yeah. <laughs> right? all your friends. So, um, I know we're, we're close on time here. So give me some bullet points on, in my career, we didn't used to do critical incident stress debriefs or critical incident debriefs that weren't about the tactics. And, and now that's fairly commonplace. I know a lot of folks still aren't doing them, but I think it's really misunderstood what it is. And, uh, even in my experience, just myself going to these when we had a critical incident, there's people that think, well, I'm going to have to say something or I'm not going to say anything or they're going to try to make me say something. And until you've gone through a few and hopefully they were facilitated properly, you don't really know what to expect. What are some things in your experience that makes for an appropriate quality critical incident stress debrief? That's an interesting question because there are actually a few brands of critical incident debriefs, right? There's the SISM model, you know, critical incident stress management. There's the CISD, critical incident stress debrief, which kind of come from the same place. And then there's some hybrids and things like that. And <clears throat> I have an opinion and a, and a perspective. And my opinion and perspective are that we have to be very careful about mental health people because mental health people are not universally trusted. We've been talking about it. However, if departments have done a good job, their peer support team is trusted. If that's, a, if that's not trusted, that's a whole other animal that we need to talk about. So therefore, I believe that any kind of critical incident debrief should be peer-led and they should be supported by mental health. And so when you come in and do a debrief, there's lots of rules that you need to have. The number one rule is you don't have to say anything. You're just there. Next one is <clears throat> we basically have four different categories or five different categories of calls of incidents for which there will always be a debrief. You don't get around it. The officer in the field, the sergeant doesn't get to say, I check with everybody, we're good. Okay? Because that continues the stigma. It's like, nope, whenever there's a kid call, we're doing a debrief. You know, Whenever there's a suicide, we're doing a debrief. We just do. And once we're in there, <clears throat> then it goes through a system that says, we're going to talk about what happened. Not the tactics, but everybody says when they showed up and what they did. And I cannot tell you how many times in a debrief, that very first step has cleared the air on a lot of things because somebody thought, I didn't think you heard me. I thought part of this was my fault. No, I absolutely heard everything you said. We're all good. 
because it made me angry and it made at myself. And now I don't have to feel angry at myself. I kind of forgive myself now. The next one is the kind of like, what was the worst thing about it for you? And then what's your takeaway? And it's really that simple. And all it is, is a conversation if you do it right. And what happens afterwards is some of those people didn't say anything or not much because they still are on the edge about peer support and how it can and will be used against me. But a lot of those folks will come up to the mental health person afterwards. By the way, the mental health person is only there. We kind of reverse roles. I come in as the subject matter expert on mental health. You guys are, it's your department, it's your situation, it's, it's all you, not me. And as a result of me just being there to clarify some things and predicting symptoms, predicting what the next few days are going to look like and what might happen, what might not happen, so that then when it does happen, you don't think you're weird or you're broken. You think, oh, he told me this might happen. It's happening. Then a lot of people will come up to me afterwards and say, hey, can I get your card? Because they're not going to say it to the peer supporter. And so if you just start to make it more of a casual and yet required scenario where it doesn't have to be so rigid then I think you get a lot of a lot of more traction out of it. And I see people wanting debriefs now. I also think that you have to be careful that your mental health person knows how to peel people off because some guys shouldn't be talking about a whole lot of stuff because sometimes what you'll hear is the backlash is, I didn't have any trauma until I heard him talk about that. And now I caught his trauma. It's like, okay, so let's pay attention to that because if you know what you're doing, you can say, all right, we're going to stop there. And that's something you and I are going to talk about later. And let's just keep on going. You know, so there's a way to do this really well and really correctly. Um, I think it has to be trained the right way. But you'll also notice that in wellness, in public safety, there's a lot of vendors jumping in. There's a lot of people saying, this is really important. We all want to help. And that's probably all true. But they're not necessarily all coming from a place of thorough understanding of how it really works. And I think you make, you, you mentioned trust. I think you have to find your trusted partners in public safety and you have to stick with them. And they have to be people in my mind who really only work in public safety, live it, breathe it, you know, eat it, sleep it, all that kind of stuff. Just like you guys do your job um, because I think that then becomes the best partnership. And, you know, like I'm only as good as the people I surround myself with. Everyone in our organization is either a retired responder or someone who went and got a license, someone who grew up in a first responder family, someone who um, was is married into it um, because we believe that is the badge of honor that you need to have to really get it and feel like it's not just a job, you know, it's an adventure. So those are some bullet points. I think, I think they can be really, really good, but I've also seen them go badly too. And that bothers me because then it gives it a bad name and then that spreads faster than the good and stuff. And it, it can cause more, more damage than you were trying to solve. Yeah, remember, you created, remember, yeah, you made this worse. Yeah. We're supposed to be a do no harm kind of, kind of yeah. thing. So we have to be careful with it, but I do think there's right ways to do it. And that's something we train on all the time. Uh, Cause like I said, we're, we're out at everything all the time and it, it's a science and an art the way, the way you do it. Yeah. And you have to be proactive with it. So um, like I said, I was in peer support for 15 years. And then when I became the coordinator for our department, um, your team can get stagnant. I mean, you know, you can't just use your peer support only when the big one happens, because then what happens is you, your peer support people, nobody ever sees them because you don't, if you don't hear from them, but once a year, um, and then they're also may not be very good because they're not, you know, getting any reps in. And so, um, 
you know, I use the word threshold incidents and doc was saying like, what are your top five? You know, it's like identify, you know, five or eight threshold incidents that go, we are going to notify peer support and let them do their thing. If these die, and those are just guidelines. Cause there can also be a, you could have a, you know, a non-threshold incident, but a field supervisor says, Hey, you know what? I noticed that John was a little upset. We were talking to him and I found out that we've just found out that he had a relative that passed away or he had a, uh, you know, this was, you know, brought up something in, in the past or, you know, or they just, they were impacted on an incident that nobody else really thought was, you know, a big deal. So it's like creating that awareness, I think in field supervisors and team leaders to identify um, if any of their people are struggling with anything and then getting, pro being proactive with the stuff, meaning, so you identify those things and then you, you have your peer support team checking in with officers on child deaths. If they do CPR on somebody, you know, uh, multi-fatal accidents, you know, um, uh, you know, gunshot, multi-victim multi type things. And then um, you know, things that, that get flagged by somebody else. Cause sometimes you'll get called by, you know, just an officer says, Hey man, I, we were on this call and, um, I want to let you guys know that, um, you know, cause it might not have got flagged. Nobody else really understood how significant um, a particular call was. And so, you know, getting the information flow to whoever can, um, and, and peer support is, you know, really, um, you know, not, not so much a debriefing, but, um, when they just call somebody like me when I was a coordinator, say, hey, Jeff, these three officers were involved in this call. Can you guys just have peer support check in on them? And that's having one of their brothers and sisters just, you know, they might be on the same shift or they go you know, bump into them on a call or have, go have coffee yeah, with them. And casual. They, casual, they have a relationship and they can just, you know, not do it in an awkward way. Just, you know, they can check in on their partners. But then the other thing is, and on actual debriefings is doing the debriefings um, on those things, because then your peer support team is going to get in a, in a routine. And then you also create um, um, some familiarity. So people start to get used to, oh, when this kind of a call happens, it's normal for somebody from the peer support team to contact me and just check in. Because at first, if they never do it, it's just kind of an awkward thing. Hey, dude, why are you calling me about that? call from yeah, you, know, you have three to normalize days ago. it right yeah it's like Nor the sergeant calling you in the office yeah yeah if that's the only time they talk to you then you know it's not good that's it so, so yeah so yeah. normalize it and then the more frequent that you do it it just that starts to become the way it is and then the, the, that paradigm shift starts to happen and then there are you know, people many times are like hey man you know i'm doing good on this but i appreciate the fact that you guys you know called me or that you sat down with me and had this conversation and um and it just it, it flows and you don't know yeah, you said something that made me think about it. Like you don't, you really got to know your people, right? And pay attention because it could be nothing. It could be benign. Like you, to you, it's no big deal. But the the color shirt that that person was wearing reminded them of the call they had three years ago. Yeah. And it all came back, right? Yeah. Or there's something going on at home or a relative. They look like a relative or like the, the, the easy ones are like, I had a guy go to a, a fentanyl overdose of an infant. And he had the same age kid. I'm like, well, you're, you're not going in on that one. Like, well, I appreciate you being here, but let's have somebody else go in. You know, like, I don't, I don't, we don't need to connect those dots if we don't have to, right? right. right. Sometimes right. you don't get the choice, right? But, right? Or they see the kid that's wearing the same pajamas that their kid yeah. has at home. Yeah. So uh, thinking about that reminded me of all kinds of little weird incidents where you just got to go have a check-in with somebody and see yeah. how they're doing. So <laughs> I don't want to tie up too much time. I know you're in the middle of, uh, you're going to be speaking today. So, but 
Tell me a little bit about where folks can go um, to learn more about what you do and uh, not just to get help in the emergency situation, but also about, hey, here's kind of how I can learn more about peer support. Here's how I can learn more about a, a robust kind of best practices wellness program and and you're right, I, I can't read anything without those three buzzwords you brought up. So was, I was chuckling. I'm like, yeah, ask anybody what those mean and you're going to get 100 different answers. Yeah. So on the peer support side of the house, uh, thecounselingteam.com. So we have a, a thing called a proactive approach to wellness. And it's a about a 20-page document that if somebody wants to you know, improve their program or see what some best practices are, you know, we've, we've, um, we've put all those things down in a document with recommended trainings and the, uh, the type of, uh, mental performance training that we recommend starting at the Academy, you know, all the way through retirement. And we're happy to share that with anybody uh, that wants it. So the, uh, the counseling team and then, uh, first responder wellness, uh, is our treatment center. So, um, first responder hyphen wellness.com. Uh, they can learn about the treatment, but that's the reactive model. You know, we want to be proactive and and help people get the information on the front end. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Jeff McGreevy on LinkedIn. If somebody wants to message me, I'm happy to uh, send them the proactive approach where they want to have a conversation about, you know, uh, about anything. And, you know, the last thing I wanted to say is just about people being, uh, you know, some of this is a leadership challenge and the person that they need to lead is themselves. And so if you recognize that something's going on, do something about it. You know, don't, don't let it fester. Um, rec just, we want you to have an awareness, recognize that if something's wrong, you, you need, you know, some help with something or one of your partners needs something that do something about it. And there's lots of places where you can, where you can get some resources and get the help that you need, but you have to lead yourself first and take care of yourself. Yeah. yeah Doc, any last words? You know, I think Jeff just said it really well. <clears throat> surveil yourself, you know, pay, pay attention to what's going on with you. It's interesting. I'll just, this little anecdote. So a, a kid called me, I don't know, about three or four weeks ago, and <clears throat> he'd just been on a SWAT call out and he called me like within hours after it happened. <clears throat> I'd seen him in, you know, counseling and he was pissed. He was really pissed because rounds went through the door, both directions. And he felt like his guy um, put him in harm's way and he shouldn't have done that. And I said, I understand everything. I said, have, let, let, let you guys go through the debrief first, and then we'll talk again. And so why don't we talk in a week? And I knew who was doing the debrief. And so <clears throat> they did the debrief. He calls me back. He goes, I am so grateful to the guy who was leading this, leading the SWAT call out because he did everything exactly right. And I was just scared shitless. And I couldn't let myself be scared shitless. All I could tell you was that I was angry. And so once I got through that and got to the other side, he goes, this, it was the perfect scenario. Everything went exactly right. Nobody got killed and I'm ready for the next one. And I learned a lot because when I'm angry, I might be scared and I'm, and I'm going to talk about that. So I was like, yes, it's working. Right? Yeah, that's awesome. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. Yeah. And so this guy is going to go do another debrief and another debrief, and it's going to change the trajectory of how they do SWAT in a lot of ways, because now it's it's okay and it's cool and it gets you to a better place. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here um, and talk with you. Um, as, in case you can't tell, I, I love this stuff. Um, it's where I live and breathe. And I just really want to help us change this culture so that it takes really good care of itself because everything it does is so important. And I hate seeing men and women broken by it. I don't think that's necessary. I think we can come out strong at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. That's uh thank you both for your work for our communities. And I wouldn't ever say I speak for 
law enforcement or anything, but since I'm the one that showed up with the recording material, I'll say thank you from the folks at Cato for all your work. And you're right. We have great men and women that dedicate their entire adult lives to this profession. And uh, to see them not live a healthy life when they're done is tragic. So thank you both. Enjoy the rest of your uh, conference in this beautiful weather. And uh, I don't know if you had to buy gas yet, but, you know, did you enjoy? I paid two sixty nine a gallon last week for oh, my Oh, yeah, gas. I bought two tanks for the price of one. Yeah. It was great. And where you were down, yeah. So I like to rub that in anytime I go to California. Oh, without a doubt. Thanks for making this happen. Thank bro. you. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you both. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice. 